This is not the media. This is hell. And you are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. This is hell. And if you can prove me wrong, please email us. Chuck at thisishell.com, Alex at thisishell.com. Send us a message via Facebook or Twitter. Please prove us wrong that This Is Hell is not God's favorite radio show. Today on This Is Hell, God's favorite radio show, we are continuing our ongoing series of Thursday interviews with correspondents, contributors, past guests, and maybe some people who have never even been on our show before to find out what the global coronavirus pandemic is like, where they are, what's happening in their community, and within their own lives during this age of the virus. We started this uh, segment back in March with our man in San Juan, Dave Buchan, who told us how Puerto Rico was responding considering they had been hit by two hurricanes and an earthquake leading up to the virus. Then we talked to our correspondent in uh, Budapest, Todd Williams, who described the expanding power of Prime Minister Viktor Orban during the outbreak. Then uh, the next week, we talked to the award-winning video game designer of the game, Thumper, Mark Fleury, who spoke to us from Seoul, South Korea, and he shared his concerns about whether Americans would put up with the kinds of safety protocols Koreans employ in fighting the virus successfully. Then we went down to Brazil to hear from our correspondent in Sao Paulo, Brian Muir, who reported that the far right-wing government of Jair Bolsonaro, like most far right-wing governments around the world, were downplaying and then underreporting the seriousness of the virus. After heading down to Brazil, we went over to Taiwan and spoke with Brian Hugh, who explained exactly how the virus could lead to China and the U.S. starting World War III. We also talked to a longtime correspondent on our show, Laura Carlson in Mexico City, about fighting a pandemic and how it's very difficult when 40% of your population lives in poverty and makes their living on the streets. Last week, we talked to Lucas Kerner to find out what is happening in Venezuela, but instead he was locked down at his partner's home in Chile, where we again found a right-wing government that is struggling with their politics during the virus, leading to far too many Chileans dead. So no, our reports are not like what you may be getting elsewhere. And this week, when the virus hit here in Chicago, the first thing to close were bars and restaurants. Both industries had recently taken hits from new competitors in the market, and their industries were suffering badly already. And it wasn't only bars and restaurants, which are often the backbone of a neighborhood's business and employment opportunities, that were having problems. It was the other local small businesses, especially in retail, that were struggling. So what will happen with your favorite restaurant or bar Will it still be open after the virus? What will your neighborhood be like when we can safely go back outside? Will your neighbors have the kind of employment opportunities they had in the past? Will you even be able to recognize your neighborhood? We'll talk about the fragile present and the uncertain future of bars and restaurants when we have the long-awaited return of Michael Roper, who has been the owner of the Hopleaf Bar at 5148 North Clark Street since uh, right about right on the Andersonville border there at Foster and Clark. Since 1992, he has been reporting on beer on this here show since around 2003, I believe. Last week... Michael posted the article how the pandemic wreaked havoc with one of Chicago's most venerable beer bars. The owner of Hopleaf Bar in Andersonville shares the unique challenges a tavern faces during the novel Coronavirus, which you can find right now by going to chicago.eater.com. 
HopLeaf.com. The Hop Leaf has received many accolades, including being a winner of a 2016 Time Out Chicago Bar Award as one of the city's best bars. You can find out more about The Hop Leaf at HopLeaf.com, and you can follow The Hop Leaf on Twitter at The Hop Leaf. And of course, we'll wrap up the week as we do most weeks with the moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorch. And this week, Opportunity Knocks and Jeff Answers. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Anything new by you, Alex? Yeah, I just went to a store for the first time in two and a half months. Really? Yeah. What store did you go in? Uh, the one downstairs because I need some ginger. Oh, uh, Farm City? Yeah. So they're already open? Yeah. So uh, hopefully everyone, if uh, anything happens to me, hopefully that ginger was worth it. <laughs> was there a big crowd inside? No. It was like one other person. Was, uh, the, was the woman working at the counter, the older woman? Yeah. She's super nice. I really like that lady. I like how uh, I was telling Chuck earlier, everyone in there was wearing big face shields. <laughs> And on the top of it, those big plastic face shields, and right. on the top of it, it just says face shield. <laughs> yeah, that's the big thing in all the, all the stores around here right now. Everybody's wearing face shields. It looks like it's a welder's convention. Everyone looks like a V. Stiviano over there. <laughs> it's a deep clippers cut for everyone who remembers the Donald uh, Donald Sterling second. You remember that? Yes. I wonder what's up with V. Stiviano. I don't know. What do I remember that guy? This week's question from hell is, what vice presidential candidate is getting you 100% on board this Joe Biden for president train wreck? What VP pick is getting you 100% on board this Biden train wreck? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins 10 This Is Hell advertising stickers so you too can subvert outdoor ads with the words... This is hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But you have to do it by the time we are done with, uh, let's see, with our guest probably. No. We're going to be announcing the winner after Jeff Dorchin, so make sure you get your uh, answer into us as soon as possible. Alex, you have more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from Al. Oh, she's on Instagram. Oh, is she? Vistaviano, oh, just in case everyone's wondering. What VP pick is going to get you 100% on this Biden train wreck? What VP pick is getting you 100% on this Biden train wreck? Camille C. says, the rent is too damn high, guy. <laughs> I like that guy. Uh, Kevin W. says, Donald Trump. One, Biden said to be willing to consider a Republican. <laughs> Two, it would attract the mythical holy grail of Republican moderates. And three, mainstream Democrats would still vote for the ticket because at least it's better than Trump as president. So vote for Biden, Trump. We have to vote for Trump in order to get Trump out of the White House. Wow. Justin M. says, the other Biden. <laughs> Gorilla G. says, Monica Lewinsky. Joshua J. says, Shiva. Eric K. says, Tupac's hologram. Ed F. says, Justin Amash or Amesh? I don't know how to pronounce Amash. that dude's name. Or Thomas Massey, though I think both are too smart for that. How about AOC? Now that would be entertainment. <laughs> Uh, Aaron B. says, Cousin It from the Adams Family. That's a lot of hair sniffing. <laughs> God, that's gross. David G. says, Ange that? Uh, that was Aaron B. All right. Angela da uh, David uh, G. says, Angela David Davis or bust. And by bust, I meant Vermin Supreme. <laughs> Ladio says, Michelle. Andrew S. says, Tim Kane. Oh, Tim Kane. Uh, what, <laughs> what VP pick is getting you 100% on this Biden train wreck? Braden S. says, Resurrect John Brown and give him a battle mech. Do you think anybody remembers that Tim Kaine was Hillary's VP pick anymore? Oh, damn. Jacob J. says, here's how Hillary can still win. <laughs> uh, Pete V. says, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and a true American. That way the Dems get the evangelical vote. Mark R. says, Joseph Stalin armed with an ice pick. <laughs> uh, and finally, Philip S. says, I wouldn't vote for Biden under any circumstance. 
Alex will, that is not an answer to our question. <laughs> Alex will have even more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. And I'm actually tearing up over here. Again, email us your answer to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com or post them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio or DM them to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. This is Hell, the best radio show, podcast, live stream, whatever this is. Your best friend has never heard, and don't you think it's about time you stop keeping it to yourselves and sharing This Is Hell with your friends? Speaking of friends, a friend of mine posted old pictures of myself and other old friends on social media yesterday. I'm not one to wax nostalgic because I don't have much nostalgia for the past as much as I have melancholia. Nostalgia is a longing or wistful affection for the past, typically for a period or place with happy personal associations. And definitely, I had many happy associations in the past, but those are usually overcome by the feelings of sadness that dominated my past when I was not around my friends and left to my own thoughts and devices, which was far too much of my time. All my journal writing back then was the same kind of self-indulgent crap you would expect from someone in their late teens and early 20s. Oh, poor me, poor me. I was convinced that nobody had ever been as depressed as I was and that what I was feeling was unique to all of human experience and that nobody was going through the pain that I was going through. When in reality, tens of millions probably were, if not hundreds of millions. But mostly, what I see when I look at those pictures are images of someone who didn't care, was carefree, not impervious, but simply not considering anything as dangerous. I took risks that should have taken my life. I didn't care because I wasn't risking anything because I didn't really care about anything. Don't get me wrong, I wasn't apathetic. I, I cared a lot about what was happening in the world, maybe too much, because I had come to the conclusion that nobody really cared about me or anyone else for that matter. When you are a kid, you are told how good the world is, how wonderful life can be. You can be anything. Your future awaits and whatever you want to do or be, you can do or be. The world is your oyster. And now go out there and take full advantage of all those amazing opportunities life in the good old U.S. of A. has to offer. After that indoctrination, we are then released out into the wilds of capitalist society and we discover the world is being destroyed. The people destroying it don't care because they're getting rich off that destruction. There are many barriers to society that are impossible to overcome, including the networks of elites that are impervious to us rabble. And the myriad opportunities we were promised have all vanished or were never there in the first place, merely mirages, mirages that fade as soon as they come into view. And once you confront that reality that American myths of exceptionalism, innocence, and even opportunity are not true, and you figure out that for whatever reason your parents' generation, represented by all your teachers, were lying to you about how good everything is and will be for our future, that nobody ever did really care for you, that you were not special as your parents repeatedly insisted you were, is it any surprise that people in their late teens and early 20s do not care, no matter what time you're talking about? They don't care because they're just figuring out society doesn't care about them. The whole thing about the wonders of life was a bill of goods that was never paid and never will be. Don't mistake that feeling of not caring for apathy, however. What they don't care about is the fact that they will be the inheritors, the heirs of a the society they were programmed into believing 
cared, but in reality, it doesn't care about anything but the bottom line. They are finally realizing, yes, our society does put profits before people, money before actual life, and they can see it happening right now, playing out during the coronavirus. The students of the 60s had this epiphany. So did the students of the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, every decade, even the millennials today, every generation, or... <laughs> At least the same one, at least seems like every generation goes through the same thing over and over and over again. If millennials are not voting, they're not voting for the same reason young people historically make up a relatively small part of the voting public, despite their numbers. And that is, they care too much. They cannot bring themselves to participating in a system that has been left for them that is rotted and gutted and unsustainable. They cannot keep pushing problems down the road for their kids until those problems become so bad that they become an impenetrable wall, a wall that only falls upon them, crushing any hope for any future they ever had. It's not that they do not care. It's not voter apathy. It's voter disgust. It's not the votes, the voters who let down the candidates, but the candidates that let down the voters. When voter apathy is high, that does not mean voters are not performing their civic duty. It means they are performing their civic du duty. It means that political parties are failing in offering candidates that the voter wants to support. There is no such thing as voter apathy, only political failure to offer candidates who represent the real needs and demands of people. There is no apathy among millennials or anybody. There is only the apathy of the political parties to ever offer candidates that inspire any kind of hope and motivate change from what appears to people coming of age as a miserable future that is out of their control. But we'll be fed by the media over the next several months and by leaders of both par parties. What will be fed is that young people, like always, don't care instead of old people who are once like those youngsters, and their system, they've continued not giving a damn about anything or anybody but themselves. And if the people play their cards right, the young will grow up to be just as complicit in this system of selfishness as they were, abandoning all hope just as they did. Because this is hell coming up on This Is Hell. Bars and restaurants' future is not so bright during the virus. During the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin, opportunity knocks and Jeff answers. And more of your answers to this week's question from Mel, as well as announcing this week's winner. We'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Live from the United States where property has more rights than people, this is hell. The virus is threatening industries, industries that were already on the precipice of collapse, including bars, restaurants, and retail stores. Here to tell us what it's like to be a bar owner in Chicago during the global pandemic, Michael Roper has been the owner of the Hop Leaf Bar at 5148 North Clark Street since 1992. You can find out more about the Hop Leaf at hopleaf.com, and you can follow the Hop Leaf on Twitter at the Hop Leaf. Michael, how are you, sir? Well, um, I've, I'm, I'm healthy. That's a good sign. That's a very good sign. I overheard uh, you talking to Alex earlier, and the first person on these Thursday segments where we were asked, or the first person we were talking to about coronavirus, we asked him right at the beginning, 
how are you doing? And he said he had coronavirus. So I'm very glad that that was not the answer you gave us. You are at risk. You pointed out in your Chicago Reader article, it says uh, you're in a high-risk group that due to an accident in 2013 when I severed my left phrenic nerve, my left lung doesn't totally function. COVID-19 could be deadly for me. That was that bicycle accident you had, right? Yeah, yes, it was. So uh, you're you're at risk now. Are you doing anything different to make certain that you don't have any opportunity to contract the virus? Well, you know, in my chosen line of work, I am a hospitable social person. And um, during this time, I I am not very social. Um, So I, you know, I'm I'm pretty much alone most of the time, um, either, you know, at home with Louise or I do actually go to the bar every day and, and I spend actually more time there now than I did prior to this uh, pandemic because um, I have no employees and the physical plant still needs to be monitored and, and things still, you know, mail still comes, bills still come and all that. So, but I'm, I'm alone there, you know, so, um, I'm not around a lot of people, um, and I'm doing the usual, you know, the things that we're expected to do, like, you know, wearing a mask. And if I go grocery shopping or go to the bank, I'm wearing gloves. Um, and, uh, you know, things that you don't even think about very much. I mean, I haven't shaken anybody's hand for months. Uh, and that would, you know, I wouldn't even think that that wouldn't happen, uh, in, you know, if I was thinking in February. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm being very careful. So, uh, have you been tested because you are at risk? No. And, uh, so here, you know, one of the things that did happen is that one of our employees, um, actually, um, did test positive for it, did have symptoms, did, um, come down with full blown COVID-19. Uh, I was in contact with him prior to closing. And, uh, so I was a little nervous, but, um, uh, and I did uh, contact my doctor and tried to get a test and, you know, never did. Um, because unless you are showing symptoms, uh, it is very, very difficult to get a test, even if you are in a high risk group. So, uh, no, I have not been tested. Wow, that's pretty surprising. Uh, you know, uh, my girlfriend, Laura, she did get tested uh, because she had all of the symptoms, but then they found out that she didn't have it, which we were both really surprised and disappointed by because we had hoped that she had created uh, antibodies so she wouldn't have, you know, she wouldn't be getting the virus again or would be, wouldn't be susceptible to it or I wouldn't be susceptible to it. But, yeah, she got a test, and so I'm kind of surprised that you're not able to. Uh, so did any of your other workers come in contact with the worker who did come down with COVID-19? Had they... Had they come in to work with symptoms? How did you figure out that they had they had COVID nineteen? So um, we have an, we had one employee who uh, the last day that he worked was actually the Saturday prior to the big closing, uh, and then on Sunday he started showing some symptoms, um, and it kind of hit him pretty hard and pretty quickly once it did hit him. And he was able to get tested on Monday, uh, which was the day before the closures. Um, and, um, but unfortunately it was one of those situations where 
his test was sent to California for processing. So it was eight days before he knew that that's what he had. Um, uh, so during that eight days, he, um, you know, was self-isolating and didn't contact anybody. But, you know, on that Saturday night, he came into contact with virtually, you know, everyone in the bar staff, most of the uh, floor staff, and no one else got it. And I have a, you know, a theory, um, and I'm not a doctor, <laughs> uh, but um, his job, he's a barback. And as a barback, um, he is um, washing, even though we have a, a, a glass washing machine, there's some washing that has to be done um, uh, by hand. And uh, it goes through a three sink uh, process in which the final sink is full of sanitizer. So this is someone who in his entire night of work, his hands were being drenched in sanitizer <laughs> And uh, since he wasn't coughing or anything yet, um, perhaps the fact that he was working as a barback and having his hands in sanitizer all night um, may have saved everybody else from having uh, picked it up. So you're saying to fight COVID, we should all get jobs as barbacks, Michael? I think so. That's, uh, <laughs> that's you know, the anecdotal evidence is that... Um, uh, is that being a barback and having your hands in sanitizer is the uh, is the answer. Now, you're not only a bar or a bar owner. You have a restaurant within the same building as well. One suggestion that has been made is that when restaurants reopen, in order to decrease the likelihood of transmission from one person to another of the virus, it has been suggested that we all have plastic flatware, all plates, all cups, uh, all everything must be uh, one-use, disposable flatware, cups, all of this plastic that nobody knows if it can be recycled, if it is being recycled, and more than likely it's just being burned somewhere as a restaurant owner and someone who knows how the whole dishwashing process works and how hot washing machines can get, and somebody who is aware of the whole problem with plastic straws and you switched over to paper straws. Do we need to all of a sudden be consuming tons of unrecyclable one-use plastics once we get back out of the virus and reopen restaurants? I I don't know that there's that much advantage in that because um, someone still has to handle it, even though it's plastic. So someone, you know, you know, a, the, the food runner or server who brings the food out and brings the flatware out has to touch it and it has to be picked up and thrown out. Um, so I think that it's very, very marginal, the advantage that that would have over um, regular plate. And I should say that that suggestion um, that we go to all single use is a few states are contemplating uh, having that as one of the requirements, but uh, it hasn't been mentioned um, in Illinois yet and many other states that are closer to reopening or are reopening have done a lot of other things, but they have not um, gone that route. So I I just don't think that the, the safety advantages are very significant in doing that. 
and obviously it produces a lot more waste and you know we're already using so we're using a lot more uh plastic gloves and those things um i'm sure they're going to wind up in the oceans they're going to wind up in the rivers and you know there's no way to recycle those at all um so the last thing we need is even more plastic junk yeah, I totally agree. So uh, I want to get back to before the virus and actually the last time that you were here on our show way back in August 2018. You told us about the contraction that was happening in craft brewing with so many breweries either shutting down due to so many beers entering the market and more successful craft breweries selling out to larger companies like uh, AB InBev. In April, local TV news here in Chicago reported it has been one of the fastest growing business success stories in recent years, but Now many small craft breweries are in danger of going down the drain. There are more than 230 craft breweries in the Chicago area employing thousands of people. And now there is a crowdfunding effort to keep the beer flowing. Michael, during the virus, my beer consumption has stayed pretty much the same. No, it's actually gone way up. So I can't understand why would craft breweries be having problems when, according to all reports from my house at least, people are drinking a lot more beer. Uh, the, you know, the statistics actually is true that um, uh, drinking um, has gone up. Uh, consumption of beer, wine, spirits uh, is up, but um, it is up, um, you know, off premise, um, which is taking away one of the big profit centers for not just bars and restaurants but also breweries because their cap rooms were the profit centers. Um, Draft beer is much more profitable than beer you have to put in cans and bottles. And um, a lot of breweries got caught, well, pretty much all breweries got caught in the same situation I did, is that we had a lot of beer in kegs ready to serve to customers sitting in bar stools or tables. And then now you can't serve people at tables and bar stools. So what do you do with all that draft beer? Um, in the case of uh, small breweries or you know medium-sized breweries that have tap rooms, it's not that you can't, once it's in a keg, it's not very easy or it could be impossible for most of them to then put that back in the system to put it in cans or bottles. Right now, that beer, they're saying that over a million barrels of beer are going to be dumped um, because there's no place to sell them to. They they planned on either selling it to bars, selling it to restaurants, or selling it directly to customers in their tap rooms. Now they don't have that option. The only way they can sell beer is in bottles and cans, which is not as profitable to begin with, but it's a disaster when you already have put so much beer in uh in your kegs so why are those tap rooms so why are they so attractive i know that you were talking on the show you've mentioned this several times how they became a competition to the bars that were actually featuring those kind of craft beers i mean why would i want to 
go to Dovetail and sit in their tap room, even though a friend of mine does work there and he's been trying to get me to go and drink there a lot. Why would I want to go to Dovetail and only have their beers when I can go to your bar, when I can go to the beer bar downstairs, I can get a Dovetail beer. I can't get all of them, but I can get at least one, maybe two or three. Why? What's the attraction in going to a place where I'm only going to get that one brewery's small flight of beers? Well, I, of course, I agree that, um, I, I mean, I would rather go to a place with selection, but there is a, an attraction to knowing that you're getting the beer at its absolute freshest. I mean, th- you know, that this is something that hasn't passed through several hands. It has not sat in a warehouse. It has not sat in some other bar's basement. It hasn't been in a truck. Um, so it has, you know, it should be, if you are drinking in a brewery tap room, it should be in its absolute peak, uh, of flavor and freshness. And so some people do, um, you know, they go out of their way to, uh, experience that. Um, you know, it's also, you're sort of supporting your, your neighborhood brewery, your, uh, it, it becomes kind of a, you know, a a special thing in its own way. Um, many breweries now, uh, they're also selling food. They're, you know, they're becoming more like the bars they compete against. Um, so, you know, they have had great success Now, on their end. The, the appeal is so obvious. Um, they don't have to share, uh, the, um, the money, um, spent on that beer, with a distributor, with a truck driver, with, you know, all that expense, uh, at, at the end. So, you know, it costs, it doesn't cost them that much to make the beer, but if you take out the transportation and the packaging and all that other things, um, it's far more profitable for them to sell the beer directly to customers in their tap room than it can ever be selling it anywhere else. But in order to have a taproom that's successful, you first have to be introduced to the market. You have to be out in those bars like yours and like uh, Carrie's downstairs. You have to be out in a, you have to have your beer online in a bar so people will recognize it, learn about it, and then they might be able to make enough profits to have a tap room. So you still need the bar to get the new beers to be introdu- introduced to the area. Our craft breweries, are they doing anything different now during COVID-19? Are they converting to some kind of delivery or pickup services? How are they trying to stay in the market? Well, a lot of them are doing a lot of different things. And I will say that uh, over the last two or three years, it has become less in part of the business model of a lot of um, breweries to sell their beer in other bars. They, they don't need us as much as they used to. There are, there are breweries all over the country um, and certainly all over Chicago that barely have any penetration in uh, bars and restaurants at all. Some of them aren't even canning or bottling. Their entire business is their tap room. Um, so, you know, they're, they're the ones that are most at risk right now. Um, but the ones that are, you know, sort of beyond that, who had both tap room and a distribution canning or bottling that were doing all those things, 
a lot of them are trying to think of new ways. They're, you know, because the laws have changed a little bit to help them out, some of them are doing delivery. Some of them are, um, you know, uh, that didn't can are uh, taking advantage of um, mobile canning companies who come out and can your beer. Um, a lot of them have pretty much turned off their whole, um, you know, kegging lines. They're not kegging beer at all now. So they're going to an all canning and bottling uh, business model. Um, some of them are still doing growler fills, but I have to say that growler fills are starting, we're already starting to fade um, because canning has become sort of the preferred way for breweries to sell their beer to customers to take home. Um, but you're going to, you're seeing all kinds of, you know, everybody's grasping at straws trying to find a way to get their product to their customers. But all the ways that they're using are not as profitable as what we were doing in February. But on the other hand, you are doing you're selling growlers at the Hop Leaf. I don't. I'm pretty sure that you weren't allowed to sell growlers prior to the virus. Is that correct? How have the rules changed for you when it comes to what you can sell? I mean, they're allowing. There's a lot of changes. I mean, right now we're even. You know, the um, state and some other states are are doing it, allowing uh, bars and restaurants to sell uh, pre-mixed cocktails to people to go. Uh, they're allowing people to deliver cocktails and beer to customers. Um, you know, we're allowed to sell growlers to people. A lot of things have changed. It, it, it's They're throwing us a lifeline. But I have to say, you know, a lot of the reason that we're selling growlers has nothing to do with, uh, you know, it being our salvation. Um, you know, we, we were caught with 83 full kegs and 66 tapped kegs when this hit. Beer is a perishable um, thing. And, you know, we were, we were inevitably going to get stuck with some beer. Some of it we would have been able to return. But um, selling it in growlers saves the beer from a terrible fate. It does keep us in contact with some customers, and we make a little money on it. The profits on selling growlers are way, way, way less than selling it by the pint and being able to sell food and and all this at the same time. So we've been we've been selling. We sold all of our bottled beer out right away. Um, we did it in a pre-paid, pre-ordered way, so there's almost no contact with customers. Uh, we sold about 3,000 bottles of beer. Um, we sold, we've, we've had five growler sales. We sold uh, wine by the bottle. And we've been pushing uh, gift certificates and quite successfully. But all that combined uh, has made up less than 4% of our normal gross. So our revenue is down by 96%. And, you know, frankly, this is not viable I mean, because bills are still coming in and we can't pay them. You know, let me ask you that. Uh, I was talking to Pete yesterday from Carrie's Lounge, uh, Pete Valavanis, who owns Carrie's Lounge, uh, also a good friend of Michael's. And Pete was saying, why didn't they just stop debt repayment for like three months? All mortgages, all rents, all debt repayment. 
just for three months, and maybe that could have saved a lot of these businesses. He says he's talking to tons of people who own bars and restaurants. As you know, Pete knows everybody. He's been talking to tons of people, and they're all very afraid that their business is just going to be gone. Do you think that that would have been a way that would have worked, or what do you think? Absolutely. I mean, frankly, the National Restaurant Association is predicting that 350,000 um, eating and drinking establishments are going to close by the end of the year. Um, some of them may make it through this, but they're going to be saddled with debt and with the restrictions of maybe 15 or maybe 25 or 50 percent capacity allowed. They're not going to be able to make it because they're not going to be able to pay that new debt. They're not going to pay their old debt. What should have happened, actually, you know, is that mortgage, rent, um, and debt payments should be furloughed at least to the end of the year. Just pretend these months didn't exist. Add that money. You know, if you if you had a 20-year loan for uh, construction or for uh, your you know, mortgage or whatever, make it a 20-year and 6-month 20 and loan. Just push it all to the end. Um, we need, you know, property taxes to be furloughed. We need leases to be furloughed. For example, I lease my glass washing machine system. I lease my ice machine. I lease my printer. I'm still getting bills. These things aren't being used at all. And um, so it's not like the company is going to pick up that machine, which is pretty integrated into our plumbing and everything. What are they going to do with it? No one wants it. You can't take it. It's going to sit in a warehouse anyway. Why not furlough the payments? I mean, some of these things are over $1,000 a month. I'm paying to lease something that I'm not using, and no one wants it. And, you know, it, it just, it's dragging businesses like mine down. Uh, and uh, there's no advantage to that. I mean, you know, in the end, uh, if you just have a bunch of empty storefronts and, you know, people have machines that they own, but there's no one to lease them to, um, and banks don't have any new customer to take over all these places that they're going to get stuck with. It's better to just furlough all this, this debt. It, it would give a lot more places a chance to survive because you're seeing successful bars and restaurants and coffee shops and diners, um, closing all over the country. I mean, you know, people are surprised. Oh my God, that place closed. They were really busy. Yes, they were really busy in February and in March, April, May, June, maybe July and August, they've got no business. They can't survive that. I think that's one of the things that people forget is the state of bars and restaurants and the industry even prior to the virus. You write that before the pandemic, a stampede of new brewery uh, tap rooms, a collapse of neighborhood retail that swept the streets of foot traffic and rising residential rents diverted consumer dollars from dining and drinking out. The lure of TV, computer, and smartphone screens didn't help either. So what was how, what was your future when it comes to your bar and your restaurant when you were considering it back in December, January, and February? Was your future already pretty uncertain? We were, you know, all of us were in a tough, we've been in a tough fight for a long time. And I, and people don't realize that even in the best of times, uh, bars, restaurants, coffee shops, cafes, um, are not 
super profitable. They are, you know, it's a cash flow business. We pay, you know, you know, this month's bills with money that we just, it's, it, that just came in, you know, money's coming in, it's going back out a little bit. If you're lucky, you know, you might come out at the end of the year with three to 5% profit. Um, and, and a lot of places survive for years and years with even less than that. Um, in, for a lot of owners, independent owners, I'm talking about, I'm not really talking about, I'm not talking about McDonald's. I'm not talking about Ruth's Chris steakhouse, those kind of chains, but independent businesses. Um, a, a lot of them, the owners are essentially just buying themselves a job and, uh, it's, you know, not necessarily the most lucrative, uh, a job that they could have chosen, but you know, you have this, uh, business that, that cannot, it, you know, it's very sensitive to even things like the weather. I mean, you know, you have a big snowstorm and it can set you back for two or three months. Uh, and so if, if a, if a snowstorm can set you back for a few months, imagine what being mandated close does for, you know, I mean, I think that it will take those that do survive. It's going to take them two or three years to recover from this. Many won't people, people's restaurants, bars, and cafes will be closing for months and months and months, even after we reopen. Uh, so we, we are a very, very sensitive business category and we were never super profitable. Um, but it's been a little more difficult the last few years, um, because there's been a lot of, you know, un, unanticipated cultural changes, uh, and habits, um, you know, like you said, rising rents are taking money out of our customers' pockets. And then a lot of big companies are opening a lot of new locations with a very aggressive um, expansion program that has really hurt independent places. And you could wind up, you know, when they, when the National Restaurant Association says 350,000 restaurants are, might or probably will close, 90% of those that are closing are going to be independents. I mean, we're, we're the ones that are suffering more than anybody else. One of the other things I was considering when uh, I was reading your article is how reopening isn't just like flipping a switch. It seems like a pretty difficult thing to do. So when people say like, uh, Governor Pritzker says, we're going to be reopening on whatever date, June 1st. You cannot just anticipate that it's going to be on June 1st because that date may be delayed till June 15th. And if you were going through the whole process of trying to reopen and then all of a sudden it gets moved, you're going to be kind of screwed. Once you have completely sold off your stock, how long would it take for you to reopen, to get your 65 laid off employees or enough people to replace them back? Because while everyone's talking about when the opening is, when the government says you can reopen, there are logistics to reopening. So how long will it take you to reopen after we are actually certain we can? Well, um, you know, we don't have any perishable food left. Uh, you know, we, we um, gave away all of our, you know, uh, produce and, you know, all, you know, we had 120 pounds of mussels. We gave away, we, we, um, called the Lakeview pantry and gave them 700 pounds of potatoes and all of our produce. 
Um, so um, we have to bring all that stuff back, which is going to cost us a lot of money. We have to bring fresh beer in. We're going to have to um, prep. You know, there's going to be a good week of food prep prior to opening. And um, because we know that it is very likely that we're going to be limited to 25% capacity, um, no parties bigger than four, uh, all tables have to be at least 10 feet apart, um, we will not be able to be nearly as busy as we were before. So we're not going to be bringing back 65 employees. More likely, we're going to be bringing back about 20 employees and we're going to have a truncated uh, menu. It will be, you know, we're not going to be selling as much things as we did before. We're not going to have, um, you know, hundreds of beers in bottles and 60 something beers on tap. You know, we're going to have a, in every way, we don't, we don't have the money to bring back all those experiences. And we don't even know our customers going to, really want to go into a place where a server comes up to them wearing a mask and gloves and um, the kind of social actions that people go to, especially to go to taverns, they go for the social aspects. And if you can't sit next to anyone at a bar stool and bar stool seating is probably not going to happen this year. Uh, so, you know, there's no opportunity to get in a conversation with a stranger. There's no uh, way to get together with a large group of friends. There's no way to have a birthday party. Um, this is not going to be a really great experience for people. And we are an experiential business. We don't know whether people are going to want to come out and spend their money because a lot of our customers are broke too, because a lot of them have been out of work. So are they going to want to spend a little bit, a little bit of money they have on such an inferior experience? Um, what people really long for is the, you know, the hop leaf that they walked into in mid February. And that isn't what we're going to see uh, in June or July or August, whenever we're going to be allowed to open. And um, also are people going to be afraid to go to a place that's crowded because imagine it's not just us. I mean, are, are people going to go to Metro to see a live band uh, with, you know, a thousand people like crammed in? No, they're, they're going to be afraid to do so. How do we give them the certainty that they're going to be safe? How do I get my employees? How can I, you know, kitchens, you know, uh, kitchens are small spaces where people work really close together um, they're bumping into each other They're, You know, I mean, there's almost no way to keep a restaurant kitchen, uh, socially distanced. So how do we do that? Um, you know, until there's a vaccine, uh, really, really adequate testing and perhaps even a cure for those people who, uh, are particularly vulnerable. Um, how do we, how do we, you know, do this. I mean, nobody knows. How concerned are you about your business being told you can reopen and then all of a sudden there's another surge of the virus and you have to close again? Would that be the pretty much the death knell for restaurants and businesses if they had to go through this a second time? Yes. I mean, I, I mean, 
most places, almost nobody is certain we're even going to make it through this time. I mean, I, I don't know whether Hopleaf will even exist in January 1st of 2021. I don't, I don't know. I can't, uh, I, I don't, the, I don't have a path, but if we did reopen and a month later, even two months later, um, this all started over again, um, there wouldn't be an independent restaurant left in the United States. I mean, every single place would close and, and, it, and, and then that trickles down to the suppliers that trickles down to the farmers, the brewers, the winemakers, uh, all the way down the line. It, it's going to uh, have a ripple effect that is global because of course this isn't just happening here. Um, it's not like nine 11, you know, nine 11 was a terrible thing. Nine 11 didn't affect my business really at all. You know, um, the 2008, nine, 10 financial collapse, um, every one of those years, our business improved. It, it didn't affect us at all. Um, this is, it really, really impacts us, um, in a way that it was inconceivable if it comes back and if it comes back again and again, or if a new pandemic, you know, I mean, in some ways we're kind of lucky that this never happened before. I mean, we haven't had anything like this since 1918, um, which I actually don't remember. Uh, and you know, um, so this is something that is a unique threat that, um, our business along with hotels, along with airlines, there's a lot of other people that are, you know, affected by it. And there's things that, you know, we do, we do a lot of business. You don't think about this, but a place like Hopleaf, if there's a big convention at McCormick place, we see a little 10% bump. When is there going to be another convention at McCormick place? What are they even going to do with McCormick place? You know, there's things that are going to impact us for years to come. And I don't, I don't think we'll ever be as busy as we were, um, before, uh, I don't, I don't, I think it, there's going to be some permanent changes to people's habits. And, and I think that, uh, you know, if, if companies are saying it's okay to work from home, what if they said, well, let's let people work from home all the time. Then you, you know, people aren't commuting to and from work. What do what are all those downtown bars, restaurants, coffee shops, where are their customers coming from? If people, if commuters aren't going to work. Uh, so, you know, it, it just, you, you could, I could be on the phone with you for the next hour and a half with all of the different uh, impacts that this is having. So what do you think it will look like? What is the future of Clark Street, where your bar is? A street that served a community well as a uh, diverse retail hub. Uh, you know, the Cass Hardware was there for 41 years. I know it was unrelated to uh, coronavirus, but it closed in January. And in, uh, they announced their closure in January, but they eventually closed in February. They'd been there for 41 years, pretty much kitty corner from your place. The area also had 
Hair salons, laundromats, liquor stores, produce stores, a variety of grocery stores from Mexican to Persian to Swedish to Filipino, and even a, a wider selection of restaurants with historically a, a relatively stable set of bars serving the community. What, in your opinion, do you think it will be like when the virus is no longer an obstacle to safely being able to cater to the businesses of Clark Street? Will there be business? And if there is, what kind of businesses will be there? You know, and, you know, I'm, I'm very active in our local chamber of commerce and we're all asking the same question. You know, retail was, was struggling and, and you, 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 your example of cast hardware is great. Now, you know, he retired and that's why it closed, but he couldn't find a, a buyer, you know, like no one wanted to buy his store. And so that still says something, you know, it's like that, you know, a place that had been in a, neighborhood for 41 years and you know uh, it, it was just not something that anyone found appealing to purchase um, and that's that's happening now after COVID-19 <clears throat> you're going to have um, uh, you know I think a greatly reduced um, you know retail retail landscape <clears throat> I think there'll be fewer there's fewer restaurants, fewer bars, fewer retail stores. Um, and I think that there's going to be a lot of empty storefronts. I also think, and there was a really good article in the New York times this last week. Um, it's, it's about the future of cities themselves. The reason that people moved to cities from the suburbs, uh, or the reason that they stayed in cities instead of moving away, um, it's because, you know, you walk out your door and you have all these things at your fingertips. It's, you know, it's like you, you can do everything without a car. You can use public transportation. You can, uh, you can have theater and live music and lecture series and museums and, and all kinds of food. Well, if you don't have that, are you going to still want to stay in the city? You're going to want to pay those high rents for very small spaces. Um, I think a lot of people are going to rethink the whole concept of cities, which is about density. And if you're afraid of density, I mean, you know, if you don't want to get on a New York City subway or you don't want to get on the L here in Chicago uh, or you don't, you know, you don't feel comfortable going to see a live band at Metro um, why do I want to live close to any of these things? And so, um, I'm not necessarily saying that this is the only future. Um, but it is a possibility that the vitality of cities that makes them so appealing to people like us, um, is threatened in a way that it has never been threatened before. People always um, going back to Roman cities and cities in, you know, ancient China and stuff, they, you know, they found an advantage of being, you know, a collective existence and close together and, uh, ideas, um, traveled between people who were sitting at a desk right next to each other. Is that going to be threatened? And if it is my type of business, <laughs> is particularly um, vulnerable. It, where do, you know, I only succeed if I have a crowded bar room. 
if I have people chatting with strangers and making new friends uh, at adjoining bar stools, uh, tables close together, and like, you know, a lot of interaction between people. And if that doesn't exist, uh, or if people are afraid of it, or it's mandated that it can't happen, um, our whole, you know, the, the, the multi, multi hundred year history of the, the neighborhood pub and coffee shop and stuff, it's over. You know, we don't have a future. Um, and we hope that somehow that won't happen. Somehow something needs to happen. And right now what we, we need really bad is we, you know, we have to have a vaccine and, you know, you and I, you know, we're, we're similar in age. Uh, I, I caught the very end of the polio uh, epidemic and my mother, when I was like three or four years old, my mother would say, don't go outside, you know, don't play with kids. Don't, don't run under the sprinkler, all these things that we thought, you know, don't go to the, the, the swimming pool because we all thought that was going to give us polio and the vaccine changed everything. All of a sudden my mother was saying, get out of the house, go, go play, go, go to the swimming pool. You know, like all the stuff that we couldn't do the year before. And the same thing kind of has to happen here. You know, we, we need um, something that gives us confidence to be in crowds. Uh, otherwise, you know, my kind of business can't exist. And your kind of business is really important, not only for community vitality, it's a community center, that are, there are public houses, and there are always, the people always forget this, the bars and restaurants, the corner store, the convenience stores, those, the things that are in your neighborhood, those are what employs people in your neighborhood. So they're, all, they're very important, not only for, as a community service, not only for community vitality, but for community employment as well. And Michael, I'm going to let you go, but I just got to tell you, I have found at least, and maybe you have found something better that pairs well with the coronavirus. I am on the Odd Side Ales Dank series of beers right now for uh, what I think really pairs well with a global pandemic. What's pairing well with a global pandemic in your home? I mean, you know, we've been, um, because I'm, I'm sitting on so much draft beer right now, uh, I uh, have been um, drinking some of it myself. And, um, what a surprise. you know, I, I hate, you know, I mean, I hate for this stuff to go to waste because, um, you know, it's, it's, it would be a damn shame. Yes, it would. But, um, right now, uh, we just tapped, uh, we had a, um, a beer from stone, which, you know, I haven't, I haven't, we've been carrying it on and off, but I haven't been excited about a stone beer in a while, but they have something called peak condition that is absolutely delicious. I really, really like the, um, the Sierra Nevada uh, Hoppy Anniversary Beer, which was their beer for their 40th anniversary. Uh, we had that on tap. Um, and unfortunately, these are both beers that we didn't tap until after we closed. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, we had them lined up and, you know, I was ready to evangelize for them yeah, to customers. But Unfortunately, um, you know, most people are never going to try them because in some cases, these beers were primarily draft products. Right. So uh, it's it's kind of sad that some breweries put out some special beers um, just in time for this. For and most of that beer is just going to be dumped down the drain. Um, 
and that's it's it's kind of sad but um i've been trying to enjoy them uh myself and um you know we're we're happy that we have them to help us get through the pandemic <laughs> at uh Hockley while we're sitting around there in the the quiet <laughs> you know i uh, had the 40th anniversary from sierra nevada and i had it in a bottle and it wasn't i was kind of disappointed and then i read some article online that said you gotta have this on tap the bottle version is not as exceptional as the one that's on tap so in case anybody is looking for it try the online version of the 40th anniversary sierra nevada ale michael always great talking to you michael roper has been the owner of the Hopleaf bar at 5148 north clark street since 1992. You can find out more about the Hopleaf at hopleaf.com and you can follow them on Twitter at the Hopleaf. Are you going to be selling growlers today, sir? We are going to be selling growlers Saturday and Sunday, uh, 2.30 to 6. And uh, you can go on the website and see the list of what we will be selling. Uh, and we'll probably be selling growlers until we don't have a drop of beer left. <laughs> That's so a- we're just going to do it on Saturdays and Sundays. Fantastic lineup of beers, by the way, and they're really well-priced. So, Michael, I appreciate everything that you've done here for This Is Hell over the years. I really appreciate it, and the best of luck to you and Louise and everybody at the Hop Leaf, especially the 65 employees that you unfortunately unfortunately had to lay off. It's really quite a sad situation that's happening with employment in the restaurant and beer industry. Thank you so much for being back on our show, Michael. All right. Take care. Yep, you too. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. During the Moment of Truth with Jeff Dorchin coming up in just a few, Opportunity Knocks and Jeff Answers. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. The question from hell is, what vice presidential candidate is getting you 100% on board this Biden for president train wreck? What VP pick is getting you 100% on board this Biden train wreck? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins 10 This Is Hell subvertising stickers. You can leave your answer to this week's question on our Facebook page, email it to us, tweet it at us, whatever you want to do. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell? Yeah, I got a bunch, and I got to get through them fast because I'm going to get yelled at. Uh, David C. says, Kodos intergalactic authoritarianism (laughs) is future of the Dem establishment. Also, the constant slobbering will make Biden look less decrepit. Joshua W. says, Dr. Nick. Josh L. says, Chomsky. He's always telling us lefties to vote blue because this election is too big to lose. (laughs) Would VP Pick is getting you 100% on this Biden train wreck. John K. says, Hunter Biden. Then Trump would have to dump Pence and nominate Donald Trump Jr. The universe would collapse into a vortex of stupidity and all of our suffering would end. Uh, Wally R. says, Pat Paulson? <laughs> Who's Pat Paulson? Uh, don't worry about it. It's a very old, dumb joke from the laughing. It's older than Jeez, me. Wally, come on. Older man. than me. Uh, Wally, or Marxie says Lucille Ball in her current state. Adam <laughs> C. I don't get that one. Adam C. says Corn Pop, mend that bridge. <laughs> That's the second vote for Corn Pop. Steve R. says torn between Max Boot and Jennifer Rubin. <laughs> Janet W. says I don't care if this pick is a goldfish, he's getting my vote. <laughs> Wolf N says, Slim Shady, the Eminem, best campaign speech ever. John K says, another possibility is one of these guys and posted a link to the Blue Man Group. Dave Z says, Marie Kondo, don't mourn, organize. Warren L says, Winona LaDuke. Courtney A says, Pickle Rick, and then a pickle, I didn't know there was a pickle emoji. Might be a cucumber mm, emoji. What VP pick is getting you 100% on this Biden train wreck? Cucumber's a pickle. Steven S says, Evo Morales. <laughs> Steven, another Steven, oh, same Steven S says, uh, oh, off topic, never mind. Austin RM says, Grandpa Munster. 
Munster, sorry. Munster? The Munsters? Munster, yeah. I mean, we got Cousin It from the Adams Family. We got Grandpa Munster. I don't get it. Psalm S says, Mark Zuckerberg seems like the obvious choice. Arnell G says, Hannibal Lecter. And Chad F says, Strom Thurmond. Another vote for Strom Thurmond. <laughs> People love that. Strom Thurmond. I think it's three votes for Strom Thurmond. On Patreon tomorrow, we are playing an interview that, despite being over 10 years old, is something we should be considering now under the virus. We'll share our February 21st, 2009 interview with Emma Rothschild. Uh, she is the director of the Joint Center for History and Economics at King's College, Cambridge, and Harvard, and professor of history at Harvard. We talked to Emma about her article that had just been published in the New York Review of Books. Again, this is something we should be considering today, 10 years later. Can we transform the auto-industrial society? I'll also have some new monologue about something. I have no idea. I'm not sure what it'll be about. I'm not, sure not one of those Rothschilds, right? <laughs> different radio show. You know, this is Rothschild Sen, because her husband is Amartya Sen, the Nobel Peace Prize economist who was on our show, I think, back in 2012. And that's another interview I'd like to be sharing in the near future on Patreon. Uh, I'm sure what I'm going to be saying tomorrow is going to be insightful and amazing. So whatever it is. But you can only hear what I'm going to say. That's probably amazing. Well, if you subscribe to Completely Listener Supported This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. You can also show your support for This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and just clicking on the word support where you can see all the ways you can help out This Is Hell, including all of our merchandise. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin, with Jeff Dorchin, Opportunity Knocks, and Jeff Answers. We'll also have the rest of your answers to this week's question mail. Announce our favorite, and we'll tell you who's on next week's show. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked this week were written while I was really, really high. This is hell. I know you have Heffy on the line. Opportunity knocks. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. They say we have a great opportunity during this lockdown. I know I do. I have all this time to really get in touch with myself. I can plan ahead for just the kind of society I want when we open back up. I can clean every inch of my apartment. I can get all my online paperwork straightened out. I should have started with the paperwork. I should have started years ago with the paperwork. Paperwork is the locus, the interface, where my private inner self meets the postmodern meritocracy, which takes the information I supply out to somewhere in the distance and uses it to process my public value. Whatever job I might have had ended in March with the closure of the bar I was working for. Applying for unemployment was a problem for a lot of us because the online application didn't guide us to enter earnings information that would have awarded us an amount larger than zero dollars. I'm still waiting for the email I'm supposed to wait for, answering my query about how to fix that. I can't get my stimulus payment because I have to file 2019 taxes first, haven't filed since 2016, but I can't file taxes till I get my 1099 from Uber, which they say they're going to mail me, which was weeks ago and hasn't happened yet. Also, my Medi-Cal insurance is on hold because someone somewhere wrote my social security number wrong. I might be able to fix it when my caseworker calls in three business days. They have my social security card on file, so it really shouldn't be a problem, but for some reason it is. 
Rent's coming due, car payments coming due, car insurance is due, phone bill, blood pressure meds need refilling at the end of the month, psych meds too. Nothing but possibilities as far as the eye can see. One possibility is the nut house, another the sick house, another jail, a fourth the streets. Oh, I've got friends who are more than helpful, more than willing to help, but there's only so much they can do. Thanks to the Darwinian struggle to live in the wild, wild west, there's some particular baldness and bipolar eccentricities that won't be represented in the coming generations. There was always self-interest in my advocating for a more humane society. I was hoping one day the society would be humane to me. I was watching a Slavo Zizek video, and I was appreciating what he said so much that I almost posted it. But he kept sniffling and wiping his nose and eyes. At one point, he wiped his nose with his hand, then with the other hand, then with both hands, he rubbed whatever he'd wiped from his nose deep into his eyes. I mean, he shiatsued that stuff into his tear ducts. He's definitely got it behind his eyeballs. And during this plague time, while all of us are trying our best not to smear virus into our mucous membranes, I found it viscerally rattling to watch this pasty, slovenly Slovenian, this gelatinous blob of pink eye, aggravating and abrading his raw tissues like that. And yet, Zizek represents some of the best possibilities we have. It's possible to be a sweaty, greasy blob of infectious fluid who just crawled out from under a dumpster, but as long as you speak seven languages without being particularly coherent in any of them, you could be an intellectual celebrity. Zizek represents the possibility that we can have our cake, mush it all over our bodies, and eat it too. We can have as many spouses as we can stand, or as can stand us. We can take a firm Marxist stance, but flow from it like an amoeba into all corners and crevices of culture, absorbing according to our needs, disgorging according to our abilities. In many ways, Zizek is the most realistic of political philosophers, but at the same time, the most imaginative. He will walk you down a path of reason, then before you realize it's a dead end, remind you of something completely incongruent you'd forgotten about or hadn't even realized was part of the same reality. Let's not forget, though, the realm out in the distance, the ether of Oz or the ecstatosphere, where the gatekeepers of luck are pushing our chances through their sausage machine. The sausage emerges, wrapped tightly in its condom to protect it from contamination, bounces on its tip on an ink pad, does an acrobatic flip before making a mark on a grid. That represents your value. It's certainly possible to move that mark through appeals, reapplications, resubmissions of materials, and howls into the void. There's always the possibility of appeal to the system. I mean, this is America, for God's sakes. So let's make our model of the future, where pink dolphins swim in our no longer filthy waterways, meadows, orchards, and detoxified fields stretch from horizon to horizon, and domesticated food animals become extinct or adopt feral forms in which to populate posterity's unmolested wilderness. Remember, the self-contradicting logic of a capitalism living on long past its ability to be tolerated, let alone whatever usefulness it might have had, 
is causing the system to eat its own insides. It's not just the capitalist parasites that drain us of our livelihoods and hopes. It's the system itself metastasizing into a hyper-complex tumor invading its own blood and organs, a tuberculosis of decision trees clogging its lungs. It will fall. It will crush many of us. But we have to be ready to harvest what's viable from its corpse. We can use its ribs for tent poles and its skin for tarps. We'll be living rough for a while, those of us lucky survivors, and if we don't figure out how to tap more readily into what's good about us and curtail more strictly what's bad, if we can't figure that out, well, I guess we'll just start building the same monster again. But at least for a while it'll seem pleasant to a select few of us. But let's be real for a second. There is no reality. That's not even a ridiculous remark anymore. Reality is shattered for more people at the same time since the superpowers were in a shooting and bombing war all over the world. When we pick whatever door we pick, or whichever one picks us, and step out of whatever this is, whoever we are, whoever's left, I don't know, when the afterworld comes knocking and we step out into it, and we look around to figure out which way to go. Let's just take the road with the least amount of rotting carcasses and garbage along it. Just so you're prepared, if I'm there with you, that's going to be my vote. If, if we're still doing the voting thing. This has been the moment of truth. Good day, Miss Molly. All right, sir. Alex has got to get going. Okay, hold on. I got one thing you got to you have to say that uh, if you catch the virus and get antibodies, that doesn't necessarily make you immune. No, it does not. Okay. It is a likelihood. It is not a guarantee, but it, it is a may- likelihood. They don't even know how likely it is. Right. But it is. That's what Fauci was arguing with Rand Paul the other uh, day. Uh, he was arguing. Oh. Uh, Rand Paul was saying that it definitely is a cure, and Fauci was like, "No, it isn't. It's likely." But that doesn't mean anything. It's not definitely. So there you go. It was very exciting watching Rand Paul and his new beard and mustache. Looks great mm, with coronavirus. That's turd. Yeah. All right. All right. All right till next Alex time. Back to his kid and wife. Stay beautiful. I will. Live from lands stolen from <laughs> live from lands stolen from the Potawatomi people. This is hell. This week's question from hell is. What vice presidential candidate is getting you 100% on board this Biden train wreck? Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from Al? Uh, wrong button. <laughs> it's okay. It happens to the best of us. True uh, Reg says, brace from the true Anon pod because he'd hate it, but I also can't imagine anything funnier. <laughs> what VP pick is getting you 100% on this Biden train wreck? AV says Nicholas Cage is John Travolta. <laughs> Carry on says Sam Sater or Slavo Zizek. Please Oof. and thank you. Oof. One of those. Oof. Uh, Bull Moon says you have to consider Biden's longevity. This is a more important pick than usual, so got to be Sarah Palin. Almost <laughs> feels like destiny, really. <laughs> oh, good. Johnny e says Krampus. <laughs> Strange One Two says Zombie Hunter Vampire Abraham Lincoln. Edison K says, can we get three cheers for the Dream Ballot? And then posted an image of Joe Biden and Henry Kissinger. <laughs> Oof. Uh... That guy's still alive, too. I know. Uh, Pedagogy of the Depressed says, It would be difficult, but I suppose I would vote for him if he picked me. Mr. S says, Guy Fieri. (laughs) Uh, Discipline Eurodov says, Soviet symbol of a girl with an oar, and then posted an image of a statue of a girl with an oar. Paul says, The ShamWow Guy. Everyday Socialism says, Justin Bieber, that guy will never hurt you, baby. Dave P says, Chuck Mertz or Bust. 
Thanks for giving us a choice there. Uh, Korg.org says Dan Quayle. He makes Biden seem alert. Mr. AB says Paul Mooney. Rock Taster says in rod we trust, as in an inanimate carbon rod. Uh, Chapo to fasciitist pipeline. Chris S. says Squiggy. Some of those old-timey TV references. Yes. Fred Bow says, as in all of branched Republicans, Dick Cheney. Iconoclastronaut says Strom Thurmond's reanimated corpse. He's never going to live down the Strom Thurmond friendship, is he? It's not. Ben H. says Fred Hampton. Garrett L. says Howie Mandel. Brian D. says Antichrist. Let's give the evangelicals what they want and just get this whole thing all over with already. Plus, the posters would be awesome. And finally, Red State Red says that female soldier giving a thumbs up in that famous Abu Ghraib picture would really round out the ticket. Reporting for duty. What was her name? Leslie Eng- Lindy England. 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 I knew it was England. I was knew it was L England. I couldn't remember which. Uh, I really liked well, first of all, my answer to this week's question from hell, what VP pick is getting you one hundred percent on board the Biden train wreck? It's either gonna be for me. Edward Snowden or Chelsea Manning, because that way, as they will be constantly leaking whatever Biden is up to, we'll all know constantly and immediately the effed up plan the Democratic Party has for the United States. The answers I liked the most were Steve saying torn between Max Boot and Jennifer Rubin. But I think the real answer is David Brooks. That would be the columnist that he's missing here. Uh, Wall Street Journal's Max Boot, or not uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, Christian Science Manager's uh, uh, Max Boot, uh, Washington Post, Jennifer Rubin, both very conservative, very, very conservative liberals, right-wing liberals. So I would say David Brooks might be a good addition to that lineup, Steve. Uh, Joshua, I really liked and so did, apparently, a lot of the people who visited our Facebook page saying Chomsky would be his pick. He's always telling us lefties to vote blue because this election is too big to lose. And John reacted to that by saying Chomsky also said if they ever elected him president, his first act would have to be to arrest himself for the crimes he would be about to commit. Also, I liked Aaron B. saying cousin it because there's so much hair for Joe Biden to sniff. Alex, which one did you like the most? I liked all the dumping on Chomsky responses. I liked that. I really liked Joshua's. I thought that was fantastic, and there were like 20 people who liked the comment already. So, Joshua, you are the winner of this week's question from hell. You have won 10 This Is Hell advertising stickers. All you have to do is send us your mailing address via Facebook, and we will send you those stickers as soon as we can. Alex, who's on the show next week, starting with Monday's live streaming show? Why don't you just tell us all? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, fully booked this week, too. So, uh, on on Monday, we're going to be talking with Julius Alexander McGee and Patrick Trent Grenier about their monthly review article, How Long Can Neoliberalism Withstand Climate Crisis? Uh, then on Tuesday, uh, we've rebooked this after an illness last weekend. Uh, Ariella Aisha Azule is going to be on to talk about her verso book, Potential History, Unlearning Imperialism. Wednesday, uh, speaking of people we've rescheduled, I'm really excited for this. Eugene McCarr will be on to talk about his gigantic book, The Enchantments of Mammon, How Capitalism Became the Religion of Modernity. And then finally, on Thursday, Henry Drew will be on to talk about a bunch of his writing, including his latest piece, Radical Politics and Pandemic Nightmares at Counterpunch and Jeffy. So on Thursday next week, our COVID report, our coronavirus report will be live from another major city in the world, another city overseas that everybody's talking about. That would be the huge city of 
Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. We want to thank this week's guest, Pavlos Rufos, who returned to talk about his article at the Brooklyn Rail, A Disaster Foretold. Pavlos was on in the past to talk about his book, A Future, a Happy Future is a Thing of the Past. You can find all of our interviews with Pavlos at our website, thisishell.com. Also, thanks to anthropologist Alex Blanchett, author of Porkopolis. Fascinating interview about the history of pork production, and not only that, what how, uh, how pork production and meat processing will go on throughout the coronavirus pandemic. Also, thanks to an amazing conversation we had yesterday. I really enjoyed it. Lale uh, Khalili, author of Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula. If you did not hear that interview, go back and listen to it. She is absolutely spectacular. And finally, thanks to today's guest, Michael Roper of The Hop Leaf. You can find out more about The Hop Leaf by going to hopleaf.com. This week's Hangover Cure is Take a Freaking Nap. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we will share our 2009 interview with Emma Rothschild on our car-free future. Hope to see all of you sometime in the future at This Is Hell office hours that we will have again on a Friday night when this nightmare is over. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz producing is Alex Jerry. As always, we could not do the show without Alex, without Jeff Dorch, and without Ronaldo Magaldi, without Theron Humiston, and without Richard Norwood putting together our archives. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Sorry. Uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.